Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation to be had about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. You're listening to episode 42, and this week I spoke to Aaron Sanders Head. Aaron's work stood out to me this year when I first noticed his sashiko informed stitching and really stunning imagery. Aaron walks me through his career from post-college to now, and how fiber arts has kind of, excuse the pun, woven its way into his life throughout his career in arts administration. In his work with a local art gallery, he began booking workshops to accompany exhibitions and soon realized he was booking the types of classes he was most interested in, quilting, embroidery, sashiko, natural dyeing. It was from here that he really began an active and daily practice. Aaron was remarkably candid with me. We talk about finances, the difficulty and importance of sourcing materials thoughtfully, and the, pri- the privilege in being able to, quote, slow down, and how the term self-care has been sometimes misused. I appreciated Aaron's grounded perspective on so many topics, and it was really refreshing to hear them articulated in this way. This chat really takes you on the journey with Aaron, I feel. So listen on to hear how Aaron went from studying photography in Boston to touring Texas with his partner, teaching indigo dye workshops, and making it work. Thanks so much for tuning in. Listen on for our whole chat. A huge thank you to this episode's sponsor, Craneway Craft Fair. I first learned about Craneway Craft Fair when I moved to the Bay and was searching out craft fairs to attend, as you do. This year is the 48th annual Craneway, formerly known as the KPFA Crafts Fair, and it's happening on December 22nd and 23rd. This last week especially, I've been reflecting on how important handmade and locally made is to me especially in light of the wildness of consumer culture in America. And Craneway just feels like the total antithesis to all of that. From 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on December 22nd and 23rd, so just in the nick of time if you have any last-minute holiday gifts in mind, you can find artisan-made goods in the Craneway Pavilion in Richmond, California. The best part is Craneway directly supports Berkeley's KPFA 94.1 public radio. KPFA was the first community-supported radio station in the U.S. They currently air public news, public affair, talk, and music programming, and they'll be broadcasting live from Craneway on the fair days. It feels pretty awesome to be shouting out an organization that's supporting not only local makers, but also progressive public radio. You can find Craneway on Instagram at Craneway Craft Fair and online at CranewayCraftFair.com. Oof, Craneway Craft Fair is kind of hard to say a bunch of times. <laughs> I'll see you on the 22nd. Thanks again to Craneway for sponsoring this episode of the Close Knit Podcast. Hey, it's Ani of Close Knit, and I'm here with Aaron Sanders Head. Hi, Aaron. How's it going? Hi, it's so good. So nice to be here today. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. Um, I would like to know where you are. So I am in Marfa, Texas right now. I am calling from the Shinati Foundation. Um, And I don't know if you know about the Shinati Foundation or not. Tell me about it. It's an arts foundation and arts center in Marfa, sort of a remote area. And in the um, early to mid-70s, Donald Judd, the minimalist artist, started coming to Marfa. In 71, I think he came for the first time. And by 76, he was living here full time. So a pretty quick um, transition for him. And he moved all of his work here and purchased a decommissioned army base. And so the Shinai Foundation is now housed in all those outbuildings of of the army base. And it's mostly permanent collection. It's his work. And then I think four or five other artists who have their work here as well. And then there's one space for rotating exhibitions. And so I am teaching a workshop here. So that's why I'm here now. Cool. What workshop are you teaching? So tomorrow I'll be teaching an Indigo and Shibori workshop. Cool. Awesome. 
Yeah. And so I got here, I'm doing a bit of a Texas tour. So I started in Dallas and at a place called Oil and Cotton, which is a great uh, education and art supply place in Dallas. And then Waco and then the Hill Country, which I wasn't really familiar mm-hmm. with at all until I went there. And it's the yeah. most beautiful place I've seen. It's in the middle of Texas, but it's just rolling hills and so many rivers and watering and giant trees and ranches everywhere. And I taught there and now I am in Marfa. Cool. Okay. So you are not normally based in Texas. You're normally based in Nashville. Is that right? Yes. Normally I'd be calling from Nashville, but yes, right now I'm in Marfa. I have another week in Texas and I'll head back to Marfa after that. Okay, cool. So did you grow up in Nashville or? No. So I'm from, I grew up in the South. I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. And so um, a little further South than Nashville, but I've always spent Except for a couple of years here and there, some in Washington State, some in Boston, I spent almost all of my time in the South. Okay, cool. Okay. I'd love to know, just kind of take us back to the start of when textiles came into your life and what that has kind of looked like for you. Yeah, so I sort of had a roundabout way of coming to textiles. A lot of my, I, I started off initially going to school for photography. Hmm. I went to the Art, Art Institute of Boston for photography. And just like really, really, really did not enjoy it. It was not good for me. I think part of that was just age. I think a lot of times when people first go to college, they're not old enough to go to college. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that definitely was the case for me. I wasn't really, I hadn't learned to think about myself in that way yet. And so it just wasn't a great fit. Took a little bit of time off um, and went back to school for art history instead and found my footing a lot more easily Mm -hmm. there. And then, so a lot of my earlier work was in arts administration, I did a lot of work in galleries and, and arts nonprofits. And um, the first main job I had was at a place called Kentuck. It's actually in Alabama, but it's called Kentuck. It's the original name for the city that it's in. And it is a, a longstanding traditional art and traditional craft and folk art festival. Oh, cool. And so my job there was the artist liaison. So a lot of the artists we had were Southern folk artists who didn't read or write or text or have internet or have phones. So it was, my job was to make sure they were taken care of and on board and coming to this festival every year. Mm. And so it was a lot of like finding out who their neighbors were and calling their neighbors or calling the city hall in this small town they lived in and asking them to walk over to their house and ask them if they were coming to the festival. So it sort of taught me how to deal with any kind of person that way, any kind of artist. So... Yeah. yeah, so it's and so I did a lot of work in arts administration and then worked in a place in Huntsville, Alabama called Low Mill, which is an old textile mill that is now an art center. It's the largest privately funded art center in the U.S. It's uh, over 200 working artists and retail space and, gal- and gallery space. And that's when I, I was given a studio space um, as like part of my job. Cool. And so it sort of it enabled me and kind of also forced me to look back at my own work and get back into a daily practice Mm. and then i did a residency in joshua tree with andrea zatel um who's a social practice artist yeah and she has these things called the wagon stations in joshua tree which looks sort of like the cross between like a barbecue grill and a station wagon it's these sort of um and there's a lot of images of them online there's an art 21 segment about it and um you, you, there's these they're the size, size of the back of a station wagon and so they have everything you need to sort of exist in and so did a two-week residency there with the whole intention of just like breaking things down for myself and turning back inward on my own work and the thing I started doing was a lot of hand sewing because it was portable I could hold it in my lap and it was and so I started making these kind of strange um, hand-stitched doll things little effigies mm-hmm. and that was sort of the the Kickstarter returning back to my own work. And then it's just kind of, it's grown from there. Gosh, there's so much in that. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's truly a winding, it's a winding path for sure. I mean, yeah. I think it's a common story of like, yeah. you know, this thing kind of came, came together and um, with this piece of something else. And then once I had this layer of information or this kind of, um, I don't know, experience or kind of, part of my education or career or something that kind of came together in this way to lead you to where you are. It feels like a common, a common story that I hear when I'm podcasting. Yeah. And I think you don't, you obviously don't realize at the time how yeah. much all of those layers are adding up. Like I wouldn't be able to do the work I did 
I'd do today if I hadn't um, worked at a place like Kentuck and seen all these different types of artists and different types of people making a living in so many different ways. There's no way I would be able to be doing what I'm doing now. And so I think there's, when, once you're able to zoom out kind of years later and see the whole kind of picture, it makes a lot more sense than it does kind of at the time. Yeah, totally. And it's always nice, I think, too, to like, like I try to take either my birthday or the new year or just like periodically just check in and look back and be like, what just happened? And how did those pieces <laughs> fit together? Because I don't know that we have like, uh, an encouraged practice of doing that of like reflecting and then looking back on like how all the pieces fit together yeah definitely not so I think that's one actually like there's so much negative like obviously negative negativity about social media and obviously there's a facade you put up when you're posting certain things but it is a good I think way of sort of going back and tracking things and seeing like oh I did this at this point and that kind of led to this and you can kind of track things there obviously is a lot of sort of polishing and different different ways of presenting it. But I think at its core, it's a pretty good sort of timeline tracker, mm -hmm, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. It is really helpful for that. I want to know, so when you were stitching these little dolls, like, were you hand stitching from some knowledge you previously had? Did someone teach you to hand stitch? Did you just figure it out? Yeah, so I was, um, growing up, my mom is an artist as well. And she's um, an amazing she like, crochets lace and quilts. So she has this. So I'd, I'd grown up around all these things. I hadn't done a lot of it personally, but I'd always grown around them. I knew the materials really well because they were just always around. Um, but when I was first doing it, I was doing everything really, probably really poorly, and was buying like like I didn't even like I didn't even know to use like embroidery floss instead of just regular thread for embellish. Like, I was doing everything wrong. But I think that it took me doing everything wrong to figure out, you know, what I, I was using button and craft thread for everything, uh -huh. and which is like so thin that it's, it takes forever to do anything with it. So I was using really like not the best material, just like what I found, a lot of like salvage things and just a lot of probably polyester blends and, mm -hmm. and just sort of figuring out what worked for me. I was really inspired by kind of ready-mades and just like miniatures and things that you could take with you that didn't require a lot of space to either create or to display afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so I just, a lot of it was what I had around me already that I, I guess I'd always imagined I was going to turn back to my own work at one point. So I sort of, I think like most people do collected like a, like a squirrel, all these different things. So I had a lot of stuff and it was just a matter of having the time and the headspace and making myself sit down and assemble those things into something. Yeah. So did you feel like it was at that residency that you really like those pieces kind of started to come together for you? Yeah. And also at the residency, it was people from all different. It, there's, I think, 12 pods that you stay in there. And there was everything from like an, someone who worked in like disease management who was there. So it wasn't it wasn't just artists. Um, and it was and there were obviously painters and artists there, but it wasn't just that. And so that also shifted my entire way of thinking of, I think for a long time, I thought that there was only certain ways of, of, of having a creative lifestyle. When I met like different people, it, it sort of, it kind of blows your head open a little bit when you realize, oh, there's this creative sort of strand through all these different careers. And I think once I saw that, I didn't feel at all pigeonholed or limited to any specific practice because I'd seen so many examples firsthand and spent time with people who were doing things so differently. Cool. That's really cool. And so that was just like a couple of weeks. Yeah. So I was there for two weeks and it was my first time spending any time in the desert at all. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you've spent any time in the desert, but it does. It feels like you're on a different planet kind of. Totally. That's how I feel about Joshua tree as well. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. time kind of moves differently and yeah. it's just, everything is sort of different there. And so when I came back, I remember when I coming back and I was, remember thinking like all the ceilings felt very low everywhere. Cause when you're mm. there, everything is this expansive, gigantic open environment. And so I think when I came back, I just sort of, once I get sort of focused on something, there's not a lot of stopping me for good and for bad, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think I was just pretty determined to not, to just use that as like sort of a, a crux of, you know, that was going to be the beginning of this sort of new approach to things afterwards. And it's worked pretty well so far. That was mm. five years. That was five years ago. Oh, okay. Wow. 
in my mind it was like very recent five years maybe it was it was maybe it was four it was four years ago sorry four years yeah, ago yeah. i mean still that's like a, yeah. quite a lot of time in between so then what happened when you came back like what what how did your practice start to look and can you walk me through how it's evolved so when i came back i was working at i was still working at the place called low mill in huntsville and my mm-hmm. job at the mill was booking there was rotating gallery spaces and so there were six and i booked all six of those gallery spaces and um, my job expanded from there to also booking accompanying workshops for the gallery spaces. So if there was a sculpture um, who worked with wood, we'd have a wood workshop. So sort of sort of uh, loosely tying them to the exhibitions on display. Mm. And what it turned into me, which I think a lot of people it turns into for them who had this kind of job, it turned into me sort of booking my my ideal curriculum. <laughs> and so I knew that I wanted to really get involved, explore. Uh, any kind of hand uh, handwork, hand mending, hand, natural dyeing, and so I started booking a lot of workshops like that. And so I booked an indigo and shibori workshop, um, and I booked a, a visible mending workshop. And this was sort of before, um, like visible mending now. As I know it has this whole sort of culture around it. At the time, it wasn't quite. And I'm not saying this to sound like I, I was there before. It was cool. It just was. <laughs> it was just was kind of different. And yeah. and so I booked that workshop and also took the workshops too Mm -hmm. and the woman who taught that her name was nadine she really helped me a lot and mentored me for a while and that's really when my practice sort of shifted pretty fully to textiles and taking textiles more seriously and kind of trying to honor the materials a little bit better and also be a little more intentional with what i was with the materials i was using Mm -hmm. totally and then what did that kind of look like for you of like what kind of pieces did you start to make? Yeah, so my fir- so at first I, w- I decided I was going to be a quilter, and okay. so I think I think that's what people and yeah, that's what I knew of as textiles was oh there are quilts mm-hmm. I can make a quilt and I had no idea how to make a quilt like absolutely no idea um, and most everything I do is is it's to a certain extent fairly self taught mm-hmm. and. So I knew sort of like the general anatomy of a quilt. I knew this quilt sandwich and I, I kind of knew what the quilt was. Yeah. And so, of course, I dive in all the way and immediately decide to make an entire, you know, like queen size quilt that's just like square patches and in hand dyeing each each square, which is probably not the best way of really starting something. It's probably better to start a little bit smaller. I wasn't really very good with that. And so, so I started off with making um, quilts. And then I, I sort of got bored with the kind of formalist aspect of them and how you, how kind of constrictive they can be. I mean, I, I think quilts are incredible, and I still love making quilts. By the time my knowledge of quilts was a little bit, I think, restrictive, mm-hmm. and so that's when I started sort of breaking things apart a little bit and not worrying so much about the structure of them and just focusing more so on um, kind of assemblages and and using even using like raw wool. I had a friend who was a mm-hmm. uh, who had a a sheep farm and she would give me her raw wool incorporating those into different wall hangings and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I started being a little bit less concerned with um, kind of formal ideas of what these different things were and just sort of making what worked for me. Mm-hmm. And how, so it's like you had a friend who had some raw wool and stuff, but mm-hmm. like how did you go about beginning to get more interested in the materiality and the, the literal materials, like even just going around and finding them and buying them. And I feel like that experience for everybody is um, so place dependent, but it's also, Mm -hmm. it can be like really hard to find materials that you feel are transparently sourced or you're like excited about them. What did that look like for you? Right. I think when I first started out, I mean, I, I don't think I did the best. I think I thought I was doing a better job of it than I, than I actually was doing. Mm -hmm. I was going to a lot of just sort of like big box fabric stores and like Joann's and places like that. Yeah. And I was buying, you know, mostly remnants. So I guess that was a better than just buying throughout the bulk. Mm-hmm. But um, that was really for the, I hadn't discovered any, any sort of great suppliers at that point. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one reason that people get often pretty tripped up when they're first beginning because they feel this immense pressure to source her responsibly, which obviously is very important, yeah. but it's hard for people. There's not a great resource list really um, for people really to begin that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think I did a very good job to begin with. And then the friend I had who had a, um, the, the, the sheep farm, she um, started giving me a lot of her materials because she was phasing out of doing textile work. Mm-hmm. And so that was a good sort of bump. I inherited a lot of great materials from her that she had sourced 
And that, and I still have a lot of that stuff. It was a, it was a whole studio's worth of, of material. Wow. So that, so I think that that was the, the ideal thing for me was having someone like that to kind of push me in and guide me through from there. Yeah, totally. That's so lucky too to have somebody who's like, hey, I have a studio and the timing right. to work out for you to be able to have some of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's she was um, was an incredible uh, needle felt artist. Ah. And so a lot of wool. And so I still have like a garbage bag full of wool that is just waiting for me to do something. I don't know what yet. Right. I was going to say, do you have ideas about how you might no, want to use it? No, I don't it? know. Yeah. I mean, of course, I'm always, I'm always sort of, I'm always telling myself I can't learn another medium because I, I don't, I just don't need more like stuff and I need more to distract myself from. Right. But I just learned two weekends ago like a, I took a lap weaving workshop oh, cool. so now I'm like oh god now I have a whole other thing to sort of like <laughs> distract myself with and focus on right but um yeah I'm sure at some point it's just in the closet right now but I'm sure at some point it'll, it'll work its way out yeah. and become something totally so do you would you consider like your main things that you're doing dyeing and um like hand stitching sorry right? yeah so mm-hmm. I guess we're fast like fast forward to now what I mostly focus on is yeah so natural dyeing with um, my main focus is indigo although recently it's become some other some other things as well a lot of mm-hmm. black walnut because i can source those really easily like just uh, like on my street um and then a lot of hand stitching and for hand stitching i i source um i'm not really picky about a lot of a lot of materials um mm-hmm. and um and that's one one reason why i like textile so much is that it's pretty accessible for most people um like most people can find needle and a thread if they don't already have one you can find one at like the corner store you know like like a singer mending kit is there and that's one reason why i like textile so much because it's so easy to kind of um kind of get into but the one thing that i am kind of picky about is um the thread that i use Mm -hmm. and so um i source some uh naturally dyed wool thread from a farm in tennessee called fiber farm and that's oh, cool. yeah. and that's so so mostly I um I don't like to say embroidery because I I don't do a lot of um, traditional embroidery stitches yeah. um and I don't also don't like to say modern sashiko because I think that sort of implies that sashiko isn't modern or contemporary when it totally is traditionally it's like the most striking amazing graphic I think medium. Yeah. So I do sort of like a hybrid of it's sort of grounded in Sashiko, but I do a lot of improvisational stitching and kind of make up my own patterns based off the landscape around me and kind of um, kind of use those parameters and then within those kind of ignore all of the traditional rules. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, it's interesting because your work does look Sashiko inspired, but not mm-hmm. Sashiko. Like it's definitely not it, you know? Yeah, I don't really acknowledge like the the traditional like kind of strict stitch length um like the grain of rice sort of stitch length i don't really do that uh, and so i mean i do I, I draw everything out before i do it I, so i am the things are pretty rigidly gridded out but beyond that it's um a pretty intuitive process when i start to to stitch something mm-hmm. and then i always stitch on all naturally dyed fabric as well cool so when i know i kind of forced you to fast forward till no, now <laughs> but is there kind of a was there stuff happening in between? Well, clearly there was stuff happening, but is there anything that you like want to talk about or that was notable between like kind of what we talked about of getting started and then um, really getting to where you are now of like indigo and um, this specific stitching style that you've kind of evolved? Do you remember what that kind of looked like? Yeah. So I took an embroidery class mm. and I was convinced this is like the thing for me. This was going to be okay. the thing. And I really loved it at first. And it was very traditional embroidery. It was, you know, like lazy daisy stitching and chain stitch to the whole, you know, most of the mm-hmm. kind of traditional foundational embroidery stitches. And after a certain point, I just really did not enjoy it anymore. And it was a little too, I don't know, something about it just, it didn't really, it just didn't really lead me to the end that I wanted to like end at with my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I, I love looking at embroidery. And I think there are incredible embroidery artists out there. Um, but it just, it ended up, it just didn't really work with what I wanted to do. And so I'd done a lot of Sashiko before, but I hadn't really invested or investigated the, the proper way of doing it. 
Mm-hmm. There's, you know, they're stitching directions. You stitch in certain directions and you stitch one axis and the next axis. So there are all different ways of doing it. So I was making it really hard on myself by not learning those things. Right. And so I spent some time like really investigating that. And then and I started off stitching a little bit more traditional sashika. And then um, I became more interested in sort of developing, developing my own patterns and sort of improvisationally stitching, but was still using geometric patterns. And so it kind of evolved out of that traditional embroidery in Sashiko, and then I sort of tweaked it to kind of meet my own ends. Yeah, yeah. And now you've been doing, it looks like, a lot of like fairly small scale pieces that are kind of a, an experiment in stitching or a, a, a way for you to do like a little sampler of what what, mm-hmm. the, what the stitch is. Is that is that right? Yeah, and so I, I didn't always do that um, because I do make quite large wall hangings as well. Um, and of course, it's like the way that I always do things. I dive right in. So I was making these gigantic things, and I, and I wasn't sure. And I was developing a pattern as I was making them, and mm. I realized how not smart that was to, to do that. And I was like, if I make this small version and practice first, and I can like figure out and work top as I'm doing it. And so that's evolved to sort of a daily practice of making, usually they're about, I would say about 8 by 8 inches to 12 by 12 inches. Um, at least one a day I'll do a stitch pattern um, wow. and I'll play with color and play with pattern um, usually what I do for, I dr- always draw like a dot grid out at first um, mm. that's, that's my, my most asked question is how I just get things even as you draw things out um, yeah. and and then, then I'll either have a sort of like I'll see something in nature or some plant or something and then I have a dot grid notebook that I kind of draw things out and sort of diffuse these organic shapes into more geometric shapes and then kind of play with it and figure it out. And other times it's a lot more improvisational. I have a sort of general shape in my mind that I want to create. And I'll, uh, I do a lot of thread weaving as well. So I'll sort of stitch out the kind of the first layer and then weave back into it. So it's a lot of sort of improvisational work um, kind of combined with a pretty methodical approach as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, personally like never <laughs> really bad about sketching things out yeah and i think that i feel like for a lot of people they think it's like cheating so they think it's like you shouldn't have to do you should be able to have perfect yeah. stitches without drawing it out and that's just like not the um, case at all i think that yeah. like if people knew that i think most of the people that they admire work from that they're probably drawing out a lot of lines and such lines yeah <laughs> or like or so much of this work like quilting and stuff is actually mm-hmm. just made easier by like by taking the time to use a tool and yes. make a straight line. And right. It's like there's a reason There's a reason <laughs> yeah. that they've, they've invented, like the my sort of, the tool, if I went to a desert island, the tool I would have to have is this Dritz um, chalk. It's like a mechanical pencil, but it's with chalk uh, instead. And so yeah. there's a reason why they invented these things. <laughs> like totally. the people who, who have come before us would love to have had these things. They wouldn't think yeah. it was cheating at all. They would have loved to have had these things. So I think there's no reason that we can't take advantage of these. I don't think it makes your work lesser by any means to, you know, use any kind of pattern or any kind of grid or any kind of guide. I'm a big believer in that. (laughs) Totally. And I always feel like there is so much work that's already been done. Like Mm -hmm. so many layers have been, have been set before us. Like Mm -hmm. there is no need to reinvent the wheel. Right. (laughs) I think it's also just a matter of like knowing what your strengths are. Yeah. And I know that, like I, I probably could eventually learn to like spin my own thread, but there are people there who are doing it so beautifully and so well that if I if I didn't utilize those materials and, and decide to make it myself, my work would probably suffer from that. And so why let your own work suffer because you had this weird devotion to making everything yourself? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think totally it, and I think good. it took me a little bit to get to that point of sort of like letting go some of that control. Mm. I was gonna I was gonna like weave all my own fabric and then spin my own thread. I was gonna do everything. Wow. And then I was like, this yeah. is there's no reason to like to hold myself to this like bizarro made up standard that only I mm-hmm. even observe. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, I think letting go of that was a big shift for me too. So now I source a lot of other things and, and you have to be conscious of where you're sourcing things from, obviously, but if someone else is doing it really beautifully and really well already, like why not just go ahead and support them and kind of absorb that into your work as well. Yeah. So I know that you were saying like fiber farm is the mm-hmm. embroidery supplier or the, the floss, but how are you, how have you gone with your fabric sourcing now? 
So there is a place in um, Tennessee called Yates. Actually, it's in Georgia. It's, it, there, there's a weird part of Tennessee where you are basically you're in Georgia and Tennessee. It's just, it's a, it's a strange, <laughs> and you kind of dip into it. Like when I leave um, my house to go to Fiber Farm, I'd go through Georgia to get there, even though it's in the same huh. state. Um, huh. And so there's a place called Yates Bleachery. It's in Flintstone, Georgia, mm-hmm. and it is a um, it's like a, it's a textile finishing uh, mill, basically. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a remnants room there. And the remnants room is, um, it's, it's just, just massive. It's, just, it's absolutely like, it, I feel like if most people could get to the bleachery, they would be so insanely impressed by it. Mm-hmm. And so my friend Casey runs Fiber Farm. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she's the one who introduced me to it. And so I sourced fabric through her, through the bleachery. Gotcha. And because it's a lot closer to her. And so... Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And then also, and I'll still, I mean, if I'm, I buy a lot of remnants. And so if I'm going to need something yeah. really quickly and I'm close to, you know, some kind of, some kind of big box store, if I have to get something for some reason, then um, I, I don't buy things off the bolt usually because it's just a weird, I don't know. I just don't do it. Um, but I'll, I'll still go in like remnants bins and dig through remnant bins um, yeah. and buy things there as well. That's cool. Yeah. I also kind of feel like, a lot of these things we can get really dogmatic about (laughs) our approach to them and really very like on a high horse about how we should be sourcing or the things we should be doing. But I think it's also really nice for people to talk about the evolution of their practice and the evolution of the ways in which they uh, know about supply chains or they care about supply chains or the things that they personally choose to focus on. Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, you could have, you could choose to like weave your own fabric. And then probably not do a new stitch pattern every day because exactly. you spend all of your time weaving. Yeah, I could like build, I could like grow a forest, build my like own loom yeah. from the forest. Yeah, so th- there's like you can go right. as insular and molecular as you want to go with that. But right. I feel like if you're if the difference between you making something and not making something is like fear of sourcing, then I think you mm-hmm. should go with what you're able to get. Mm-hmm. And if that's going to be the difference in you doing something or not, or not doing something. Yeah, totally. And I do think that that's kind of the beauty of the fact that our community is so widespread and it's so connected for the most part. I mean, I'm thinking now about you saying how you had to like call people to be like, can you go around as such and such as yeah. house? I mean, that's amazing. But but the fact that the majority <laughs> of us are like yeah. connected through the internet or mm-hmm. by whatever means so that we can... Um, we kind of don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, you do right. have access to Casey who happens to know such and such, who happens to know such and such that, you know, can yeah. kind of link you up and sl- make it sort of this slightly more organic and slow process of like, of finding the things you do want, but you know, that it will just take time to do it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just feel like there's, um, and I think it, well, I think it gets easier the, the more you do it. Like when you're first starting mm-hmm. out, it's obviously going to be really difficult for you to, to source a lot of material in a way that, and you also don't, I don't think you think about it initially in a sustainable way anyway. Yeah. And so I think once you get more invested in it and once you get just more involved in that whole community, it becomes a lot more, a lot more easy for you to do it. And I think that it's something you shouldn't beat yourself up about when you're first beginning yeah. because it's going to end up frustrating you or making you feel insecure or kind of less than, and then you'll end up burning out, not making anything. Totally. And I do, I also think there's something to be said for the accessibility of these crafts. And while like thread in general is like a pretty feasible thing for people to purchase, I feel like the idea that you have to be perfect straight away and you have to be like Mm -hmm. buying the nicest material and like, you know, Mm -hmm. the naturally dyed locally grown version is going to just like mean that some people never even try because they're like, that's completely out of, that's way out of what I could possibly afford, you know? Right. And that's like why when I teach, yeah. especially indigo, when we begin, we're starting with just muslin. Like mm-hmm. we're not starting with the fine, we're not starting with silk or the finest material you can buy mm-hmm. because it removes that sort of fear, uh, that sort of preciousness that you have over materials. And so you're able to experiment, able to kind of dive in mm-hmm. without this hesitation. And I think the same goes for all materials. Like if, if you're buying, you know, the most beautifully naturally dyed fabric in the world that you haven't used before, you're not going to cut it up and it's probably going to sit in a stack for a long time if you aren't used to using it. Totally. So when you're first starting out, it's, it's just, I think the, it's less important to about those things are less important. It's more important just to, just to start with what you've got and what you have around you. Yeah, totally. I think that's a really nice approach and it just leaves a lot of room for, 
for growth. It's kind of a nice, a nice in, and then you have all of this expansiveness that you kind of get to discover as you, as you get further into it. Yeah. Yeah. But but again, I think it is important if, if you have the ability to be as sustainable as possible with your sourcing, obviously you should definitely do that. And I think the sort of responsibility increases the more involved you get Mm because you get the more knowledge you have kind of, Totally. but, um, so I don't want to seem like I'm saying like, use whatever you yeah, like don't care about the environment because obviously i do yeah um but i think there's like a sort of a, a dichotomy there and a way of engaging with it on both on both ends totally can you talk me through how your process has changed with natural dye like you were saying you've you've been really interested in indigo but that recently your practice has changed to kind of be more just what's around you did you notice that changing or, or what did that process look like yeah, so it's, it's changed in a few. Even within indigo, it's within indigo. It's sort of changed, mm-hmm. um, like the way I've sourced, I've started sourcing indigo, mm-hmm. um, because I was recently I was gifted um, some indigo from Stony Creek. Mm-hmm. It's out, it's a farm outside of Nashville, yeah. and they grow their own their own indigo, right. and you can buy it in powdered form. Cool. And so even so, now I've been I'm almost out of what was gifted to me, so I need to re up. But um, it was so even my like supply, my sourcing of that has changed to be a little bit more kind of local. Yeah. And and then, yeah, I mean, just walking around like I was going for a walk in my neighborhood in Nashville and saw, you know, a sidewalk literally just full of black walnuts. Mm-hmm. But, well, this is probably a good thing to start investigating. Yeah. And so started doing that. And then there's just so many um, back to Casey at Fiber Farm. She uh has a ton of Osage wood chips. And so mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of Osage wood because also just my favorite color anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I think the whole, for a while, I think I was getting a little burned out with my color palette because it was all, everything was blue. <laughs> and, yeah. and, 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 it's, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like indigo is, you know, uh, I think a universally, I, can th- I think I can safely say a universally beloved color. Totally. Like everyone loves indigo blue. Yeah. But at a certain point, like you get tired of looking at indigo blue all the time. Yeah. And so it sort of changed my work a lot too, because I'm able to use a lot of different colors when it comes to stitching because, you know, just playing with color with a different background is, is you know, an entirely different experience. Yeah. I, um, today we, we, we did a, a four hour tour of Shinati and it was amazing, but there were, there are six buildings of just Dan Flavin artwork and, um, Dan Flavin sort of, uh, invented um, using light in his work. Okay. Um, it's a lot of sort of like fluorescent lights, like, like the long sort of fluorescent bulbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we walked into one of the rooms and uh, you walk in, there's like, this like long empty room, with these little like caves at the end at an angle. So you can't see into the cave. You see light coming out of them. Mm-hmm. And um, one light coming out was just like lavender color and one, one was more of a blue. And when you walk up, you realize that in the lavender sort of cave, the bulbs are actually yellow, but the room behind it is blue. Oh. And so it's creating a sort of lavender color. Mm. And so it's, it sort of made me think a lot more about, I'm thinking a lot more in general recently about color relationships and working with color differently. Mm. And seeing that today was like a sort of like a, like kind of a switch sort of flip a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so... So, so my whole, I guess, with um, with expanding my natural dyeing sort of repertoire, it's also been able to expand my ability when it comes to playing with color right. and playing with, with those color relationships in that way as well. Right. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. I'm really excited. This, this whole trip has been a, a pretty insane sort of crash course and, and seeing, like we went, to, we went to the Dallas Museum of Art, which is this massive museum. Mm-hmm. Um and they had an entire um, impressionism show, and um, impressionism is never really my favorite genre. But um, it was they had a bunch of uh, Monet's water lilies on display, and I hadn't seen them in person before. And just seeing that insane color that's able to be built with those brushstrokes and those like small amounts of a color was just absolutely insane. Yeah. And so I have all these things. Obviously, I can't really naturally die on the road very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have all these things in my head that are kind of churning for when I get home to sort of experiment with and kind of combine some things together. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's, an, that's a really nice thing, I think, to be able to step back a little bit from your day-to-day and yeah. move into a new space and kind of see what comes up in those. Like, it's obviously a huge 
it's such a privilege to be able to do that, but it's such a nice, I think it can be yeah. so invigorating and it's great. I think what's mm-hmm. great about the type of work that you're doing is like the work is in terms of the financial work is supporting that kind of work because you're teaching classes, you know? Yeah. So that's quite a nice, I feel like that's yeah. a nice little synergy. And um, I think that um, I'm happy. To, I, I love talking about the sort of financial aspects. I think that's awesome. something that, that yes. no one discusses at all. Yeah. In most, in most any creative community, yeah. especially my partner's a musician, mm-hmm. and the amount of um, like the lack of transparency about finances in the creative, it, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Totally. So no one knows what is acceptable because no, no one knows what anyone else is getting. Yep. And I think that it's just, or no, no one knows how anyone else is making anything at work because right. they don't know how. And so, and so it's just crazy to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so I'm happy to talk about anything financial. But um, I think that, with the workshops, yeah, it's been, it's something I, I realized I could do it. I could teach workshops that are within my, my interest in medium and still learn mm-hmm. from doing them. Cause I learn something everything, every time I teach, cause someone yeah. will come in and just do something I never thought of before. Mm-hmm. That is just absolutely incredible. So I learned so much by doing them, but also, I mean, the money is really good and you're, but you're delivering a product and experience is worth what people are paying for. Mm -hmm. And so it's a win-win for everyone involved Mm -hmm. and they're getting a skill set to take home and use in their own work and you're being supported in your lifestyle. And so it's just a win-win I think for everyone. And I think also at a certain point in life for most people, there's no longer a time when you sit down with other people and just like hang out and do something, Mm -hmm. especially after, if you go to college, there's, that but after like high school or school there's not really a lot of time to do that Mm -hmm. and so creating those spaces is i think really important to me as well um but being able to sort of utilize those things as a supporting my my life is also really amazing as well yeah definitely um because you somewhat recently quit your day job is that right yeah and so i i'd I'd worked full-time since i graduated from undergrad Mm -hmm. and um some sort of arts. And the most recent, I worked at an art gallery in Nashville. It's a commercial gallery down in downtown Nashville. Mm-hmm. And um, it was great. I mean, I loved it. Um, and I loved selling work from other people because you get to, you know, you, you know that you have, you're having a hand enabling this person to live the life they want to live. Yeah. And that's a really rewarding feeling. Um, but also, I was traveling a lot more with workshops and I knew that it wasn't really fair to ask for all this time off and I wasn't going to be in fully, I knew something was going to start suffering, be it my own work or my work for the gallery. Mm -hmm. I didn't want either one to suffer, but I knew I was at a place in my life where if I didn't do this now, I wouldn't probably do it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I have a month's long notice. And so it was like a a lot of time to sort of kind of like slowly kind of pull out of the gallery and, yeah, so that was starting out. That was in September, okay. and so October was was my first full month of doing this full time. Awesome. So, yeah, it's been an experience. It's um, my partner's a musician, mm-hmm. and so he travels as well. And we were really interested in kind of figuring out some sort of lifestyle that we could do together, mm-hmm. and but still both be satisfied and both, you know, support our own work, but also enjoy things as well and so yeah. like I'm, I'm doing this texas tour right now and he's playing shows in texas so he's playing a show in marfa sunday night and i'm doing a workshop saturday oh, cool. so we kind of book things in conjunction sort of yeah and so it's sort of this creative lifestyle we're sort of molding kind of around ourselves i think so that's really cool <laughs> yeah and i think that um it's just sort of took i mean i didn't do it it wasn't a haphazard decision i had enough in savings where i knew if I didn't book another workshop for the rest of the year, I could still make ends meet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that that was the case. And, but I also knew if I didn't devote more time to it, then I wasn't going to be able to develop that, that, that side of my you know business at all. Yeah. And so I just, and I also just like, I wasn't, I was really, cl- really, really close to burnout. And uh, I, yeah. and I'd seen a lot of people burn out. I did not want to burn out at all. And yeah. so I took the plunge and, now I'm here, so it's it's going well so far. <laughs> yeah, and so you kind of you guys kind of booked this as I mean a workshop tour for you, but mm-hmm. kind of a tour for your partner, I imagine, like a music, musical tour. Um, yeah, how did you like? How did you secure venues? How did you figure all that stuff out? 
Yeah, and so I'm like the biggest the biggest supporter and the biggest believer ever in like sending out blind emails. Uh-huh. Like I will I will email anybody. And so I what I usually do you. <laughs> I know I'm I'm a great emailer. And um and I think that I think that most people are so afraid. And I think I learned this from booking gallery exhibitions. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I first started booking shows, I was always afraid to ask people to do shows. Like I was always afraid they were too big right. or too famous for the, for the, the space I was booking. Right. What I learned is that most people are just waiting to be asked to do something right. <laughs> and they want to do stuff. And they oftentimes people will just assume they're too busy. So they don't ask them to do anything. So mm-hmm. they're just waiting to kind of be asked to do things. And and so I sort of flipped that for my own work now. Mm. And I've realized that most people are just like, when you ask, people like to be asked. And so yeah. I'll find a city that I think I want to go to and I'll find a couple of venues in that city that either already have workshops or have some sort of base, I think, for for um, what I'm interested in and what I, what I do. Yeah. And I'll just email them and say, hi, here's some images of past workshops. Here's some things I can possibly teach. Um, are you interested in doing this? Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of, it's becoming progressively less non-responses, but beginning in the beginning, it was a lot of just like nobody responding Okay. because I mean, cause they don't really, when you first ring out, you don't have a great history of, you know, doing these things. Yeah. And, um, I was lucky to have a lot of friends who had studio spaces and gallery spaces who would let me come in and teach. Mm. And, and so, um, so with, with Texas, I, I knew I wanted to go to Marfa, but Marfa is very isolated and it's hard to do like a trip just to that place. Right. And so um, I emailed Shinati first and set this up and then kind of booked a tour, you know, in cities along the way mm. here. Mm. I'll do, we'll do it in New York next year and then Colorado next year and just sort of kind of across the U.S. So Cool. Yeah. And I want to, I'm like thinking, I just keep thinking, they're like, how can I adopt this model? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think that it's like a, an interesting, I think that there's like increasingly there's sort of a move away from traditional models. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that personally in the gallery world, because people aren't, the way of interacting with art is so different now. Yeah. Um, you see it on Instagram, you see it much more directly with the artist. You don't need this sort of person to kind of like deliver it to you anymore Mm. this this institution and i think the same thing is happening with the craft world as well um and so i think i think that i always feel like workshops are this like thing that people more people should do (laughs) especially if you if you're interested i I, I mean i find a lot of joy in teaching i'm really interested in teaching yeah um and and it's a great way of enabling you know to support your work while still doing your work but in a slightly different way yeah i think I, with teaching, initially was, like, afraid that I didn't know enough to do it. Yeah, exactly. And the more that I did it, the more I was like, oh, wait, I know a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, and so I think, like, what you forget is that all these things that you take for granted, like, no one knows how to do at all. Right, Like, Like, some people don't know how to, like, I mean, and this is not an insult at all, but... Like showing someone how to tie a knot like really easily while mm-hmm. sewing, can, it's like a game changer for some people. Totally, and and it's something that you do every single day, and so you don't think it's a big deal. Yeah, and the same with dyeing. Like you just think like when when you're when you do it every day, all these things seem like a breeze and like simple to you, and so you have all this self like I think it's a lot of this imposter syndrome as well. Yeah, um, and then and so you don't realize that oh wait. I actually kind of do know a lot about this and I am qualified to teach us and be in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the more you do it, the more, I mean, I still forget all the time and I still get nervous and think this is not worth this, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then I just like push it all out and think, nah, it's fine. Yeah. So. <laughs> I know there are so many times where I will have like worked a whole day and then I've booked a workshop for like a te- uh, knitting class or something for after I've worked all day and I'll just be like mm-hmm. oh my god why did I do this to myself I'm so upset this is terrible and then I get there and we start we start knitting and everyone's lovely and I'm like oh yeah <laughs> this is why we did this yeah exactly it's great <laughs> yeah. and people are and you, you meet the coolest people ever yeah um yeah it's just, I think I think it's a great just like model in general it's sort of like going it sort of harkens back to like a super old model of mm-hmm. like traveling craftspeople like oh, yeah. going like village to village you know and like yeah. fixing people's like you know like mending horseshoes and you know like that whole like like blacksmiths who would travel from village to village it's sort of the same like a similar thing that we are doing now yeah. it's just 
a little bit easier for us, I think. Yeah, we're more connected. It's easier yeah, to tell people yeah. about it. But I, mean, I think that, I think the, I think so much of, of that insecurity. I mean, something I struggle with all the time is imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. like and feeling like I don't I, I don't like deserve to occupy the space that I'm occupying or like the mm-hmm. you know be it in general or like on that specific that specific day. Yeah. Um, I think it just takes a long time to kind of get over that and to think a little bit for your mind to catch up with what you're actually doing and to think a little bit bigger. Um, I think we just, we tend to sort of limit ourselves in that way. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm slowly, I think my mind's sort of slowly catching up and I'm feeling a little more, a little more confident. <laughs> Good. That's great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you look very legit on the internet, just <laughs> FYI, yeah, like very that's, legit. That's, um, <laughs> yeah, my, my, um, I feel sort of a really, it's, it's been a really surreal day because I, I, we're at Shinati, which I've always wanted to go to Shinati, and I'm, we're actually staying at Shinati, which is even crazier. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm like dreaming. And then we did a four hour tour of Shinati, and we got back, and my partner's music video premiered on Rolling Stone today. Oh my God. And so we were just like, what is happening today? Like, this is the most mm-hmm. insane. And so we're like, yeah, it just feels like today, today we're both like, we can acknowledge that we are like, we're killing it today. This is a great day. Oh, <laughs> we are like doing awesome. this really well. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been a good, a good, a good week for sure. Awesome. Yeah. It sounds like that tour is really fun. Yeah. Cool. Um, I read a little, your like first post on your blog and I just appreciated oh, yeah. this snippet that you said is it okay if I if I if I read it yeah and I don't know if uh, I remember it or not so please do well, it well and I'm just curious to see how it sits now yeah. like kind of you uh, know a year-ish in or so mm-hmm. okay <laughs> uh you said let's be honest here the world does not need another blog there are plenty of amazing ones out there there are already plenty of lifestyle brands advocating for you to quote slow down and we all know that the pri- the privilege implied by that and that the feasibility of the act of that act being done by the average person is slim. But what I think the world can never have too much of is spaces to share thoughts, inspirations, challenges, and examinations. This seems increasingly important in current times. And that's what I plan to use this space as. Yeah, that's great. I can look like that. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I wonder who read that. But I was just curious. I like, I mean, that resonated a lot for me, like personally. And I I imagine it would with like much of my audience. But I guess I wanted to ask you, like, reflecting on that, how does that, how does that sit for you now? Yeah, I think that, um, I think it sounds like a little shadier in the beginning than I meant for it to sound. Like I don't have any problem with obviously blogs or lifestyle brands. I think they're great. No, no, uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I personally didn't take it. Yeah, that way, but um, yeah. But no, I think that um, I think that there's obviously that we're in like very terrible times, or a lot. Most people, a lot of people, are in really terrible times right now in America yeah. and feeling, I guess, the world, but I think specifically in America and this sort of. Trump era and this yeah. people are feeling very unsafe and especially people minorities, people of color, queer people, it's just a terrible fraught time. And I think that there's this obvious pressure, which is, I think is appropriate in times to, for everything you're doing to be this resistance towards, um, towards that and towards mm-hmm. like pushing back against that. And I think that that's always painted as like, you know, um, protests and demonstrations and politically resistance, which I think is important and should be something that people do. But I think this there also is people don't recognize like the kind of radical nature of like making beautiful things as well, and mm. the radical nature of taking that time for yourself to, um, I think just focus on yourself and and there, I think it's got it's gotten kind of I think um, flipped in a lot of ways in this sort of like kitschy like hashtag of like self care. But I think, yeah. but I think, it, yeah. you know, at its heart, that's a, obviously an incredibly important thing for people to do. Um, yeah. And I think that, and I think that people forget that that's sort of a radical move sometimes to do that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that addresses what I said in the blog post or no, not. No, I just curious. <laughs> yeah. And then whatever comes out is fine. I think um, I noticed too, that like part of what you've been up to since leaving your job was like shedding possessions and then deciding mm-hmm. on this really intentional and slowly built kind of wardrobe that like fits with what you're currently this like life that you're kind of shaping yeah. for yourself and so it feels like it fits into this of like of not just being about quote slowing down in the way that it's kind of overused mm-hmm. or the way that like hashtag self-care is overused mm-hmm. 
it is kind of this more uh it's like a quietly radical act, yeah. you know? It's like this kind of slightly subversive, slightly just like, I don't know. I just, yeah. Yeah, and I, I just appreciate like, how you said it. And I feel like it's sort of less about sometimes slowing down because most, most people don't have the option to slow down um, right. because if you slow down, you're either like not getting paid or, you know, like there's right. there's things that you like and you can't pay rent that month and you can't feed your rent. It doesn't, right. You can't really slow down. It's like, yeah. like you can't afford to get your nails done you know you can't just like you can't just like hang out that day and not do anything i think it's more about i've learned for me less about slowing down because i can't slow down and more about just like refocusing things and sort Mm -hmm. of figuring out and like i guess just just refocusing and sort of restructuring things and realizing like what really is important what i can Mm -hmm. kind of shed um and and still you know make things work for myself but kind of just kind of shed something yeah like you were saying shed some things like that um, yeah, but I still, but, but it's still acknowledged. Like I know that I have like a gigantic amount of privilege that I've from just like my entire background. Um, I think I've also worked really hard for a lot of things that I have, but I think there also is obviously that seed there of a lot of privilege that happens every mm-hmm. day for me still, I think. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's just a matter of, of using, you know, sort of, sort of the platform that I, that I have and that. Uh, that kind of grows sometimes and kind of shrinks sometimes other times and kind of, you know, sort of waves in and out um, and using that as, as positively as I, as I can and being as realistic as possible within that and kind of advocating for things that I think more people can adapt and that are more realistic for other people. Totally. Yeah. That's awesome. I'd love to know if there's, well, I guess I'd love to know what you kind of see. I know you talked about doing a little bit more workshop touring kind of mm-hmm. next year, but what do you see kind of in the future for the work that you're doing? Yeah. So I, I, I pretty much always plan on teaching and that's from a realistic standpoint because it's um, like, I'm just not a good production sewer. Like I don't, mm-hmm. like I don't make like goods very well. <laughs> and, and I love people who do like, I think, cause I mean, obviously I love, you know, well-made things. I just know that I'm not going to be, and I'm not saying I will never will be, but right now I'm not gonna, I'm not the kind of person who can make, you know, 100 beautiful pouches or like, you know, 100 pillows. I just don't have, I don't trust myself to do that. And also it's just not what I'm interested in. And so I know yeah. that for me financially and feasibly, it's a lot more about workshops. And so mm-hmm. um, my work will always to some extent focus on workshops. Um, but I think that I'm looking at, um, I've always mostly offered Indigo and, and Shibori because people yeah. really love that. And it's just a lot of fun to teach. And yeah. so now I'm looking at sort of expanding my offerings kind of. And so I did one in Dallas that was, um, the first half of the day was dying. Second half of the day was hand piecing um, quilt blocks and cool. so we hand stitch like log cabin blocks and so just sort of adding in kind of elements of different things and kind of expanding what my um, offerings are yeah. but I'm also looking like I'm, I'm having a show of my own work in December at a friend's gallery in Alabama and so it's my first time as a self-employed full-time artist showing work as you know, with that capital A artist, it's like a threshold yeah. that I've sort of taken on. Um, yeah. And so um, I'm thinking a lot about, um, about color relationships, a lot of like tone on tone work. And so a lot of monochromatic work and um, doing a lot of sessions where the thread and the fabric are the same color. Um, and so sort of investigating like who the work is for Um because only I can really see it most of the time. Uh-huh. And so it's doing a lot more of that for myself. Because um, I don't ever want the work that I make to, so someone to look at it and think, oh, that looks so hard to do. Mm. It looks so difficult. Because that's not, I'm not interested in like difficulty as like a, a value system. Um, and so I'm exploring a lot, a lot of different ways of stitching, even like removing stitches and just leaving the, like the punctures from uh-huh. just work behind as a pattern instead. Um, expanding scale to doing some working on some rather large wall hangings so mm-hmm. um, like four by four feet hand stitch wall hangings that are still really intricately stitched but you know just a larger scale um, so just sort of using the same kind of mm-hmm. um, parameters and just sort of exploring within those 
Cool. So yeah, it's, it's, it, we'll see how things grow and develop. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like it's always been very um, organic and natural for you. So it's exciting to see, you know, it might lead that way or it might lead a different way. And it's yeah. Just... I feel like for me, either things either happen like in an hour, like sudden, like major life shift uh-huh. or like very slowly over the course of like two years. So I, I have like, <laughs> I only have like two speeds, I feel yeah, like, yeah. which is probably isn't really healthy, but it's just the way that I've developed. So yeah. And I think that, and, and the way that my current work is um, the one thing, I think that the one thing that sort of ties um, everything sort of together is um, just like the presence of my hand and something. Mm. And so that's something that will always be involved in just sort of, increasing and decreasing that presence but always having that that mark making ability there sometime Mm, that's really great i like i like that way of thinking about it yeah um yeah we'll see what happens (laughs) cool well thank you so much for being here thank you so much for having me i've listened to so many episodes and so it feels so good to be on one Thank you. Thanks for listening. It's always like, somehow it's like always shocking when people say they listen to the podcast. Oh I'm like, God, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it's great. I love so, it so much. Good. There, there aren't a lot of great, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of great craft podcasts, but I think that um, the focus of yours is, is so different and so much more about sort of kind of realistic mindfulness and also like realistic lifestyles. And that's a big, um, a thing that's kind of undersung and so it's nice to hear perspectives on that thanks yeah that's a that's definitely an intentional kind of like hey this seems to be missing from the conversation in our community so let's talk about it it's the same it's like like i was saying before like no one discusses like money ever right and so it's like the same thing it's like like there we have to discuss these things if we're ever going to like evolve these things as like a, a kind of a broader kind of consciousness absolutely totally agree